Well, welcome to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are really glad that you're here this morning. I apologize for Jay and just him (laughs) setting baseball back about 60 years with that announcement. He hates all things good, (laughs) all things American, all apple pie, baseball, you know, all the... I'm glad he stumbled there with some of the terminology. He deserves it for coming after the greatest sport like that. Um, we are continuing on in the book of John, and let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, I'm thankful for this book. Um, I've been encouraged. I've been um, just um, empowered since I know I've been studying it the last several months that we've been in it. Um, I pray today as we dig in and Really allow your word to change us. I pray that you would allow us to um, humble ourselves, put ourselves under your scripture, and trust that these are your words, and these words bring life, as we're going to see today. And I pray that as a result of, of, of digging into this word, that we'll, our minds will be changed, our hearts will be changed, will be changed as we leave this place today. So I pray that your spirit would speak through um, the word this morning, and change us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. One of the things we've continually asked ourselves when we are going through this book, and really this is what you, we should do with any text of the Bible, is why is this passage here? And why did the author of this particular book want to write this in this place? And with the passage we're about to, to, to look at today and that we just read, I'm guessing as John, remember John writes this book probably 50 years, 60 years after um, Jesus' life and ministry on earth, right? And so he's thinking back as he's writing this of all that has happened. And I, and I can imagine that this kind of event today that happened um, is probably seared into John's mind. It's one of the things, probably one of the, t- I'm guessing, top five things of John was to be asked, what do you remember most about your time with Jesus? I think this would be in the top five. This is a a turning point and a pivot point in the gospel that we're going to see this morning. Now, one of the the reasons why this is so um, kind of a a, a impactful event and, and passage today is because Jesus is going to say something that it, that, that at one hand is the greatest news the world has ever heard, while at the same time he is extremely offensive in how he's saying these things and the things that he is saying. So there's a tension that we're going to have to sit in this morning and be, be okay with um, as we kind of dig into this passage and understand what Jesus is saying here. And tensions are really normal, right? We, we deal with tensions all the time. Like in our everyday life, we're, we're individuals, but we're also members of a community, a family, a city, a church, right? There's some tension there. We're creations that God created us, but we also can create. So we're at the same time creations, but we're also creators. The Bible calls us to be humble, yet be confident and bold. That can be a tension there, walking out in those. The Bible also has tensions all throughout the text. Right? We have the Holy Spirit inside of us, the person of the Trinity, one-third of the Trinity is inside of us, yet we still have flesh, we still sin. There's a, there's a tension there. 
We have the already but not yet kind of way the kingdom is coming. We see kind of pieces of the kingdom that Jesus is unfolding before us, but it's not here. It hasn't arrived fully yet. We are at the same time sinners, but also saints. Once again, a tension that we have to live in. And this tension we're going to look at this morning, I believe, and I think the the scriptures would confirm it, is one of the key um, ideas or principles to understand in our discipleship. As we follow Jesus, this tension is extremely important. And we're going to start with one side of that tension. One side of that tension is the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. Let's look at verse 60, the first verse in our passage. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Okay. Now, this idea of it's a hard saying, they don't mean that it's hard to understand or hard to comprehend or the language is difficult. That's not what they mean by hard. What they mean by hard, it's hard to accept. It's hard to apply. It's hard to align our lives with. When they hear this, it's hard to take in. It's like, how, does this, how do we incorporate this into our life? Right, what does it mean for our lives to line up with what these things you're saying, Jesus? And this word for hard is, is the root word sclera. It's where we, where we get sclerosis. That's the word used for hard or the hardening of something. Right? And these things, that, these things that they are referring to that Jesus is saying, we've seen these all throughout chapter 6. We saw them last week as Matt did a great job preaching on the passage leading up to this in verses 47 and 48. Jesus says, we looked at it last week, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And then it says, I am the bread of life. Like really strange, right? And, and, and then he goes on in John 6, a few verses down there, John 6, 53 and 54. He said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, Jesus is using intentionally hard words, things that, 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 that cause the, the, the listeners, the audience, to wrestle, to dig in, to try to figure out what he's saying and how might their lives line up to what he is saying. And when he says bread of life, if you remember, he's just saying the sustenance, the thing we look to to survive, the thing we look to to grow, to make it, for life to work. And what he's saying there is the bread of life. He's saying, I must be your center. I must be your sustenance. I must be the thing you look to for survival like we look to food for. Bread obviously was a, was a staple of the diet in their time. So when they would have heard bread of life, bread was kind of the representation of something they would look to for sustenance, for survival, these types of things. And Jesus wants them to realize that he is the bread of life. He is the one they should look to for sustenance. He is the one they should look to for life and for growth. Right, almost every day we have this conversation with our six-year-old Jacks. Like the kid loves him some sweets, right? As most of us do, right? Love dessert, love sweets, love love the things that taste really good but aren't good for you. And every day we have to have this conversation of why we limit that, or why we're always talking to him about you got to eat some of this other stuff. You can't eat just these things, right? Because we know what's good for him. 
We know that those things, although they taste good, they taste good to most of us. We understand why he loves them. I like them too, but if that's all we eat or we eat too much of those, it's going to hurt our health, right? It's not going to allow him to grow as a six-year-old into an adult, right? These are things that Jesus says to get, him, to get the people to focus on him, to, to know that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, that, 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 that he should be our focus um, in as we live our life. And so all throughout John 6, leading up to this point, Jesus has been saying hard things to take in, hard things to apply to their life. And he says in 61, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? So he's starting to feel the disciples kind of pulling away, the crowd there. Right? They're taking offense at the things he was saying. They're grumbling at this. They, they're beginning to count the cost, and they're beginning to pull back or fade away. The verse 62, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? This idea of ascending, um, most commentators think it kind of has a dual meaning. One, it's referring to what we think it refers to is when Jesus ascends back to the Father after his time on earth is done, right? But a lot of commentators think that he's also referring to getting put up on the cross, right? This, this idea of being lifted up, this, the, the, a lot of the scripture authors say, um, was a way they talked about crucifixion, to be lifted up or to be raised up. So this ascension could also mean to be put on the cross, to be crucified, to be put to death in that way. So he's saying, if you're having trouble with these things, if you're having trouble with this eat, eat my flesh, drink my blood, this kind of talk, just imagine how hard it's going to be when I'm put to death on the cross. Imagine when you see me ascend to heaven, how are you going to get that? How are you going to understand that when I leave you, when I go back to my father? He wants them to be challenged. He's challenging them with the things he is saying. If you remember, this, this passage started with the feeding of the 5,000. Most commentators think that probably between 15,000 and 20,000 people were there, if you count men, women, and children. So you have 15 to 20,000 people interested in Jesus, wanting to know more about him. They're intrigued about him. They've, been, they've heard about Jesus, and now they're kind of following him around, so much so that John refers to them as disciples, when he says disciples here in this passage, he's not just talking necessarily about the 12. He's talking about all of the people around, right? But we know that there are a lot of kind of wannabe disciples in this crowd. Jesus has been challenging them through, through chapter 6 about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow him. It's kind of a missional or discipleship gut check for them, right? It's kind of like maybe today, right? It's kind of like People who come to church consistently, they're intrigued by Jesus. Or maybe on the, the forms, they, they put Christian when they check the boxes of what religious affiliation they are. But there's no following, knowing, loving Jesus that's associated with their life. Not everyone that is called a disciple is really a disciple. We see that in John 6 here. Because John refers to all of these people as disciples. They're listening. They're hearing. Right? It's the same in our day, Right? We have people that kind of pretend to be things that they aren't really are. Like we have a whole industry, the athletic leisure industry, right, where you, people will pay, pay a lot of money for workout clothes, and you have no intention of working out in them, right? It's even athleisure, right? It's even got a name, right? You have people who we walk around with North Face and Patagonia stuff, and we haven't seen a mountain in three years, 
and we think that this because we put on this stuff, now we're some we're not climbing mountains, right? We're just wearing it around because it's comfortable and it looks good, right? Or we talk about this with, with sports, like OU football. We use the term we, right? We won. It's like 99.9% of us had nothing to do with the outcome of the game, right? But yet we kind of fake like we're a part of the team because we get benefit from that when they win. But if you're not directly affiliated with OU's football team, you had nothing to do with the outcome of their games. But so often we kind of lump ourselves into this because we want to be a part of that group. And that's what's happening here with people following Jesus. So it's important for us to think, sit with this question, to feel this tension, right? When you think of yourself as a disciple, those of you in here who, who do, what does that mean? Are you saved? Why are you saved? Are you, are you a child of God? What does it mean when you call yourself a Christian, a disciple? If so, why? We need to sit in that. We need to feel this tension. Look at verse 63. Now he explains more about what he's just said. It is the Spirit who gives life. Capital S, Holy Spirit. The flesh is no help at all. It's a huge statement there. So much theology wrapped up in that statement. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh, or our natural self, is no help at all. And the words that I have spoken to you, this is Jesus, his words, the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. And so he's trying to answer this question, how is someone who's purely controlled by the flesh, which we all once wore before Jesus came and and, and came into our lives, right? We're controlled by the flesh. We're narcissistic. We're selfish. We are our, our own gods, right? We don't think about God. We often don't think about others, How can someone like that actually come to believe the hard sayings of Jesus? It's a question we should all be asking. These hard statements, who can understand them? Who can believe them? Well, Jesus is is about to give us the answer here. He does give us. He's going to continue to explain it, but he says it's the Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives life. It's the Spirit who comes into our lives and changes us from the inside out. That's why people who are selfish, who are hard-hearted, who are controlled by their flesh, they can't believe the hard sayings. Why would they? Eat my flesh, drink my blood, right? I'm going to be, the, I'm, I'm your king, but I'm going to be crucified. Like, that's, that's weird. How can I believe that? How can I know that to be true? The spirit is what brings life. In the flesh, our natural person is no help at all. It's Jesus's words. So John is saying here, and Jesus as well, saying that we need a miracle for belief. We need something from the outside to change who we are on the inside to give us faith and belief in who God is. Apart from the Spirit, we can have no spiritual life. Oftentimes this is referred to kind of the idea of God's sovereignty or God's providence in our salvation. Our flesh is unable to choose him by itself. Paul says in his letters that we are spiritually dead. We're spiritually dead, Paul says, apart from Jesus. And Jesus is saying here, it is the spirit who gives life. He's saying this is how someone can accept or believe these hard things he's been saying for this whole chapter. Again, back to last week, verse 44 in in chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. We'll see John say something like this again here in a few verses in 65. 
later on in this book in John 10. Listen to this. We'll get to this eventually, but it connects to this passage. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Why? My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. This beautiful picture of the Trinity working together. You have, you have uh, the Father that grants the Spirit, the, the, the power to give life to people so that people can come to the Son in faith. You see all three members of the Trinity working out um, our salvation. So if you've ever wondered, how am I saved? How does this work? What are the mechanics of how I'm saved? This is it. This is a lot of where that idea comes from is John chapter 6. Again, verse 6 to 3, I'll read it again. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Listen to the second statement. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. How does this all happen? It says it happens through my words. It happens through my words. My words give, give life. They are spirit and life. That's why we need to understand his word. We need to study his word. We need to know his word. We need to meditate on his word. We need to teach his word. And in that word is the gospel. We need to understand the gospel and know the gospel because it's the good news for our salvation. It's the power of God for salvation, for everyone who believes. So this is how our salvation plays out. Verse 64, but, Jesus, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. This is, we should start to feel the tension here. Jesus says, he's just said, I will not lose one person the Father gives me, one sheep that the Father gives me, I will not lose. Yet he's saying, well, some of you are going to go away. Some of you are going to stop following me. Some of you aren't truly disciples. Some of them aren't believers. And he kind of, he, he, he weeds them out a little bit here. He's saying some hard things, and they are turning their backs and leaving Jesus. Verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples, there's that word again, disciples. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It's a sad, sad moment there. And this chapter begins with 15 or 20,000 disciples listening to Jesus. In John's words, they were disciples, right? And this ends with 12. And then Jesus is going to tell us a little bit, it's actually 11. Because one more of them is going to fall away. This is not, you know, church growth one-on-one, Jesus here, right? This is not how you grow a church. This is not how you grow a movement. One of, the, again, the proofs for why this thing is real is because if, if Jesus was just trying to create this fake movement and Christianity wasn't legit, they, Jesus wouldn't be doing this stuff. You don't say these kinds of things and try to run off your numbers if you're trying to get your numbers up to create something maybe not as real as what Jesus wanted, right? But Jesus is clear on this. This is the, this is the path. This is the way to follow him. He's being honest with the people they, that are listening to him. They don't want to follow the lifestyle of Jesus. They don't like Jesus' explanation of how salvation works. They don't like the things he said earlier in their chapter. They're, they're, they're weird. They're hard to take in. They're hard to apply to their life. It's hard to line their lives up with these things. And Jesus is kind of, he understands. He's like, sure, yeah. 
A lot of people aren't going to believe this. The cost of following Jesus is great. That's one side of the tension. But now there's the pivot here, verse, six, verse 67. Here's the other side of the tension we're going to see. So Jesus said to the 12, so what appears here is everyone is gone except the 12. And he says to them, do you want to go away as well? Follow him. Why are you here? Why do you want to stay? Right? And this is a huge moment. I mean, Jesus is God, so I think he knows what's going to happen here. But Jesus is about to lose everything. If these 12 turn their tails and run like the rest of them, they're losing, he's losing everybody that was following him up to this point. The cost of following Jesus is great, or can be great, but the life found in following Jesus is greater. The cost of following Jesus is great. It's going to cost something. But the life found in following Jesus is greater. The life found in knowing, loving following Jesus, sitting under Jesus, apprenticing under Jesus, learning from Jesus. And Peter knows this, verse 68. Simon Peter's the one who answered. It's uh, not surprising as we've seen. You know, Peter's kind of the first one to speak, even though coming out of his mouth isn't always always good things, right? But he has a pretty good day here, right? It's like like a star for Peter on this occasion. He's going to fail some coming up, but good day for Peter. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's almost like Jesus is putting them to the test saying, look around, right? Test the alternate answers to life's big questions, the big, hard questions of life. Go, Go find the meaning of those things. Go figure out what other people, other belief systems, other teachers say about the big questions and compare it, to, compare it to me. Does it fulfill your deepest longings? Does it make sense? Does it bring freedom and joy that you've experienced with me? It's almost Jesus is opening them up to testing these things, to evaluating their discipleship, evaluating Jesus. And Peter comes back and says, to whom shall we go? Like, yes, this is hard, but where else are we going to go, Jesus? Who else are we going to follow? Who else has promised and delivered so far what you've promised and delivered in these few short years they've known him? He confesses this. And think about all that they've seen, right? Only you can bring people from the dead back to life. Only you care so much about the little things that you make a celebration, a wedding party great by turning water to wine. You care about the little things and making them great. You meet people who are broken like the woman at the well that we saw and you, and you met her in tenderness and in gentleness but communicated the truth and she, she turned and she became, became a follower of Jesus and, and one of his best evangelists in the city that she was from. You take five loaves and two fish and feed people. You didn't have to feed people, but you do feed people. Where else are we going to go to find life, to find purpose, to find identity that we've found in you? This is what Peter is saying here. You can imagine he's also thinking of, of John 6, 37 through 40. Again, we looked at this last week. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
meaning we're united to him in such a way that we're with Jesus now. We can't fall away. He won't let us go, and he's going to raise us up on the last day. We're going to be brought to new life again one day, and we're going to dwell with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. This is what it means. I will carry them to the last day. They will be with me on the last day. There's nothing to fear. There's not, you can't get out of my Father's hand once my Father has you. Listen to this, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son... How are you saved? How, how do we become followers of Jesus? This, that everyone who looks on the Son, sees him, learns about him, and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. You know, we talked about this before, but eternal life, when the, the scripture writers use this, it's not, it's not just a quantity thing. When we think eternal life, we think forever. Forever and ever and ever, for all eternity. That is true. The other component, though, that this word really has with it is a depth. It's a quality. Not just the quantity, but the quality. Like right now, you have eternal life. The abundant life. The deep life in following Jesus. So he's offering us, yes, eternal life forever, but also eternal life now. Herman Bavink in, in his theology, systematic theology book says this, Christ, who is the content of the gospel, leaves no one in a neutral state. He brings a crisis, a judgment, a division into the world, and by his word, which penetrates to the inmost being of man, he reveals the inclinations and thoughts of the heart. That's what he's doing in this chapter we've seen. He becomes a rock of offense to those who despise him as a rock of refuge. And his foolishness to those who reject him as wisdom and spells the fall of those for he who, whom he is not the resurrection. What Bavink is just saying there is that part of Jesus' uh, way he deals with people is he, he kind of creates some crisis and he puts people to a decision. And this is what he's doing in chapter 6. That's why this, this confession of Peter and the other disciples is a turning point in the Gospels. And so we should ask the same question that Jesus asks us. I think this is what John wants. Will you leave him too? Will we leave him? Will we turn away? Will we ignore him? Even if you've considered yourself a, a Christian or a disciple for a while, will you remain? Every once in a while, asking ourselves that question is healthy. It's helpful. This is why it's in the scriptures, right? Every once in a while, you get these passages where there's some, there's some warnings here. It's kind of a gut check. Do you believe? Do you love him? Do you know him? Do you, would, would you say, where else am I going to go? Yeah, this is hard. Yeah, this is not promising me health, wealth, and prosperity and a better life and something I can attach to my, my bump, bumper sticker that allows me to kind of identify, but then when things get really hard, I'm just going to run to something else. No, that's not what this is. This is there's a cost here. Following Jesus is hard. But it's great. The promise is great on the other side of things. And here's the great, really, principle for discipleship I mentioned at the beginning. John 12. Again, we're going to get to this in a, in a few months. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 
We see this all throughout the scriptures, this paradox that is nothing like what our culture and our world tell us. Like, through death, you find life. Through denying yourself, you find peace. Through, through looking, putting others' um, um, needs above yourself, you actually find your deepest needs met when you do that. And this, this isn't a popular message in today's world, even in today's church or today's Christianity. It's not come to me and die, and you'll get the deep things your heart truly longs for. It's oftentimes come to me and your life will be better. You can, you can align yourselves with a group of people and get what you want. Or you're going to get extra money or extra blessing or extra power, whatever it is. And that is, you can't find those things in the scriptures. You can't. You can't. The constant, consistent message in the scripture is die. Deny yourself. Die to yourself and trusting Jesus that through that you'll actually find what you want. You'll actually find what your heart was made for and designed for. Not the, the, the cheap, short-lived promises that our world promises. We follow Jesus, and he has modeled for this what it looks like. He's the lamb who went to the slaughter. The Passover feast was centered on the lamb. And Jesus willingly said, I am the lamb. I'm the perfect lamb, and I'm going to give up my life for the sake of others. Others who didn't want anything to do with him, like you and I, turned, our, turned, turned their back on him, wanted nothing to do with him, but yet he, he remained firm. He knew his father's will. He went as a lamb to the slaughter, and he is our model. And then he's, verse 70, Jesus answered them. Last two verses of the chapter. Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Jesus coming strong there. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So this passage does not end on a happy note. Out of the twelve there that remain, there's still one that's hanging around that eventually Jesus knows is going to betray him. It's going to cause his arrest. A few more chapters down the road, we see that in John. And this is a pivot point in this book. Next week, we're going to come back, and, and the first verse talks about, in verse chapter 7, that they're trying to kill Jesus. So Jesus has lost all of his following, right? He's preached, he's taught, he's laid out who he is, what the purpose is, and they are gone. He's got 12 left, and now the, 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 the temperature of the people wanting to kill him is getting higher and higher. And so we start to feel John moving us toward the cross, Start moving us towards where Jesus is heading in his life. So how, how do we respond to this? I think this, there's, there's three ways to respond. It's kind of built into this passage. And we look at the kinds of people who heard this, what Jesus taught and how they responded. Number one, you have the false disciple, right? They, they counted the cost and it was too much. And they walked away. They were interested, they were intrigued, they liked getting fed by Jesus, they thought he was awesome in that way, but then he keeps talking, keeps teaching, really reveals who he is, and they're saying, we're out, I'm done. And we all in this room, again, this is kind of that gut check time, we, we all need to be honest with ourselves here, right? If you think you're saved, why are you saved? Who are you trusting in? Who is your God? Who is your Savior? Right? How do you respond to the hard things? How do you respond when your life doesn't go as you hoped it would? So that's one way to respond. Number two, you have Judas. Judas counted the cost, and he faked it. 
Like he knew the cost. He knew the cost of following Jesus. And he remained with the 12 so he could get what he wanted in the end. It was power. There's maybe money. Well, there, there's a lot of things you could say Judas wanted out of that. And, and I know most of us in this room aren't deceptively trying to follow Jesus. But what if you're, you have a mask on? You're kind of faking it. What if you're really following Jesus to benefit something for yourself? It's not really Jesus that you're following and calling yourself a Christian for. It's to get something else from Jesus. This is kind of what Judas was doing, right? There's a, there's a warning here. There's the tension of hearing Judas's story, right? What are you looking to for your God? What are you looking to for salvation? Are you looking for your status? Are you looking to your job? Are you looking to your approval of other people? You want to be seen a certain way. You want to align yourself with a certain group so you will be perceived a certain way. And there's, there's, there's sneaky things in all of us that our sin, our flesh that still remains, wants to be noticed, wants to be liked, wants to be approved of in other things other than Jesus. And here in, in the church culture of Norman, Oklahoma, we're, we're no different, right? We can use Jesus to, to get the other things. And hopefully he will give us the things we truly want. Are we the disciples that turned away quickly? Are we Judas? Or third, are we true disciples? This is Peter. Confesses Jesus to be the Messiah. Listen to F.H. Bruner, what he says in his commentary. Coming to Jesus that will continue only so long as Jesus' words and actually please us and make sense to us is a coming that is already doomed. He's saying if you're coming to Jesus... In, in hopes that, that, that everything we read in the scriptures make us feel good, everything we hear from the Bible makes us, makes us feel encouraged, doesn't ever challenge us, that, that, that our lives are, if it, the lives don't go according to how we want it, then Christianity must not work. I've heard that before, right? I tried that, but it just didn't work. What does that mean he didn't work? Your life didn't get better when, when you followed him for the first couple of months, right? He goes on, coming to Jesus that says, I am so impressed with you, Lord that I plan with your help to stick with you the rest of my life, is a divinely given and accredited coming and can rest in a God-given assurance of perseverance in discipleship. Again, he's saying that if you say, hey man, I, Jesus, I want to follow you. I'm intrigued by you. I want to know you. I believe that, that, that you are the Messiah, that you are the Holy One of God. But this seems hard. This is difficult. Am I going to get help? Can your, God help me through your spirit follow you? Help, help me be faithful to you. Community, help me follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, come around me so I can be faithful and I can count the cost, but I can be faithful to following Jesus. That is what Bruner is talking about in this um, scenario here. Jesus wants people and he wants their answer. These confessions are important, even from those that we are all currently following him. We're confessing our belief in something every day. You wake up in the morning, you're confessing, maybe not with your mouth, but through your actions, through your lives, that you believe in something, that you see something as your God. You see something as the thing worth following and giving your life to. This is why the creeds and confessions of the church for 2,000 years are so important. We have saints for 2,000 years who've confessed through creeds that this is who God is, and it's important for us to see those things. They, they strengthen us. That's why we have some of that in our Sunday morning services, Okay. Now, here's what I want us to feel here, right? If you're here and you're struggling, and maybe you're like, maybe you're like Peter, you're saying, where else am I going to go right now? Right? I've tried everything. I'm full of shame. I'm full of guilt because I'm not good enough. 
right? What, who, who else can truly forgive you? Who else can truly take that, that shame away from your sin and say, I've, I've, I've absorbed that. I've taken it upon myself. You have nothing to be ashamed of. What, can you, what, can, what are you following? What are you living for in your life that you can truly say, that thing has me in its hand and it's good and it will never let me go, like the Father does for us. The comfort of knowing that if you are in Christ, if you were a Christian and you believe and you can go nowhere, like how, how comforting and secure that is to be held by the, the, the creator God the Father in his hand. This is the language that Jesus uses. You're held by God in his hand if you believe in him. How comforting is that? that that's, a, that's a weapon against our shame and our guilt and feeling horrible about ourselves when we do something wrong or we fall short. Right? So how, how do we respond to this? Here's, here's just four very practical things. Um, so imagine we've pushed all our chips in for Jesus, right? It's like, we're all in. I want to pursue you, Jesus. I want to know you, Jesus. This is Peter, right? We're not going anywhere. There's nowhere else to go. What does this look like? Well, number one, know the gospel. Know the good news. Know, the, know, know truth like you, the Father has you in his hand and you're not going anywhere. Not because of your good behavior, but because of Jesus' behavior. Nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand if you believe. That's part of the gospel. Two, uh, second thing, follow him as a true disciple. Spend time with him. Do what he did. Apprentice under him. Like, give your life to following him. Things like we talked about a couple weeks ago. Developing habits of silence and solitude and time alone to spend with Jesus so you can know him, so you can experience him, so you can taste his grace, know his forgiveness, know him personally. If you, if you don't develop a, some personal um, practices and disciplines of following him, I don't blame you if you say this isn't working or I don't know him or this seems like dead, cold doctrine and I, I know a bunch of Bible, but I don't feel connected with him then are you spending time with him? Are you connecting with him on a consistent basis? Number three, invest in others and have others invest in you. This is another way of saying just be in community. Right? Have, are, you, is other, are others investing in you? Like Jesus was investing in the disciples. And are you investing in others? Are you giving your life away for the sake of others? And lastly, this would fall under the life, the, 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 the category of mission. Notice these are our values as a church as well. I'm, that's intentional. Give your resources to see people to come to know Jesus. Give your resources to see brokenness healed. Yes, I'm talking about money, but I'm also talking about your time, your energy, your gifts, your talents, your skills, all of those things. Give your life, give your resources, give everything you have for the sake of his mission. This is part of the denying. This is part of the death. Because so often, I don't, I don't want to do that. Like my flesh is, no, I, that's mine. Or no, no, that's my time. It's my schedule. I've got a plan. Don't interrupt my plan, God. No, that's part of laying, laying it down, denying ourselves, dying to ourselves. Again, the cost of following Jesus can be great. It can. The Bible tells us that. But the life found in following Jesus is greater. And may we believe that. May we internalize that. And may we trust in following God that, he, that that is in fact true. He's going to give us freedom and joy in him. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful once again for your word. Um, I'm thankful for the honesty of your word, that we know that following you isn't always easy. We know following you is not an equation that on the other side of the equation 
The other side of the equal sign means we, 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 we avoid um, health scares. We avoid sickness. We avoid um, being strapped for money. We, we, no, that, that is not what following Jesus means. And I'm thankful for passages like this that are very, very clear. Thousands upon thousands of people thought this, these things are too hard. They're too hard, and they, they didn't end up following Jesus. I pray through your spirit that you would encourage us through this, that it's not up to us to keep, us, to keep, to keep ourselves in a right relationship with God. If we confess with our mouths that he is Lord and we believe, that's it. Now the Father has us in his grasp. The Father has us in, 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 his, in, his, in his palm of his hand. We're in his family. We've been adopted as sons and daughters, and nothing can take us out of his family. Nothing. And I pray your spirit would empower us to live like sons and daughters of God. And we're not going anywhere. We can deal with our shame. We can deal with our brokenness. We can deal with our past um, wounds and our past mess-ups because the Father loves us. Not because of us, but because of Jesus. And that is the good news. Help us believe that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.